Ruth chapter 3, page 269. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you, where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself, and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are here, there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly and covered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man and he turned and discovered a young a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognised, and he said, Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother, mother-in-law, Naomi, asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her, and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Amen. I was hoping there might be a few more young people here this evening, because uh, much of uh, what I have to say will be of particular relevance to them, and be subjects of their uh, conversations at school, and the interest in the the opposite sex, but uh, we'll just have to think back to those days when we were young, for some, maybe harder than others. But one of the tough things that um, young people have to go through, don't they, is that the whole uncertainty of whether or not that person that they fancy actually fancies them. Now, how are you going to find out? How do you pluck up the courage to ask them out? What do you say? And if they say no, what do you do then? How do you face that fear of rejection? And for the girls, it's often harder because there's still that expectation. It's up to the guys to do the running, the chasing. Um, and if they're not doing that, should you take things into your own hands? And if you do, will it 
go down well or will it actually backfire? Will uh, he find you a bit pushy? It could be even harder if the person that uh, you want to go out with is someone you're already friends with. Um, but if one of you wants to take that relationship a bit further and the other one's quite happy just as it is. So I'd like to show you a short clip from a film I'm sure some of you have seen um, from a few years back called Four Weddings and a Funeral. Well, we've just got that, that sort of conversation taking place between uh, Charlie and Fiona, one of which likes the other, but it's not required. This is, um, hopefully it'll come up. thing when at last it happens. And uh, <laughs> she's marrying someone else. How about you, Fifi? You identified a future partner for life yet? No need, Ray. Deed is done. I've been in love with the same bloke for ages. Have you? Who's that? You, Charlie. It's always been you. Since first we met. Oh, so many years ago. I knew the first moment across the crowded room. The law, in fact. Doesn't matter. There's nothing either of us can do on this one. Such is life. Friends isn't bad, you know. Friends is quite something. Love dares. That's the, uh, the subject of the uh, sermon this evening. The whole area of personal relationships, a bit of a, a minefield. Um, but at the end of the day, as the old motto goes, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And this episode in the story of Ruth that we're looking at 
this evening. It's quite a daring love story in many ways. It could have gone so easily wrong. And the author just builds up the tension to a point where we wonder whether this strategy of Naomi and Ruth is going to be successful or whether it's going to backfire in spectacular fashion, rather like England's World Cup did this week. But before we get into chapter 3, let's just remind ourselves of the story so far, particularly for the benefit of those who haven't been with us um, on previous Sunday evenings, what's been going on in this story of Ruth. Well, in chapter 1, we saw how Naomi went with her husband and two sons to the country of Moab to escape famine in Judah. We shared a bitter experience as uh, she suffered the death of her husband and two sons. And we questioned whether Elimelech's decision to take his family out of the land that God had placed them in was really such a wise decision. We saw Naomi's bitterness against God. How she blamed God for all her troubles. But we saw how in God's providence she had acquired two daughters in law, one of whom, Ruth, was prepared to forsake her own homeland and return with Naomi to Judah and remain with her to death. And as it says, taking refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. Well, in chapter 2, things start to look up as they return at the beginning of the harvest season. And in the days before social security handouts, Ruth shows a bit of initiative by going off to um, pick up the leftover grain in the fields to scrape some sort of existence together. And by God's providence, she ends up in a field owned by a member of her father-in-law's family. Boaz, who shows great kindness to her. As Ruth explains to Naomi what's happened, we see here just a change in heart in Naomi. As she says at the end of chapter 2, the Lord bless him. He's not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. That man is a close relative. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. So finally, after all the difficulties she's gone through, there's a sign of hope. It's a hope that's... uh, It has arisen after Ruth and Naomi have taken refuge under the wings of God. When we looked at the three uh, main characters of chapter 1, a couple of weeks back, Limelech, Naomi and Ruth, we saw three very different people. We looked at aspects of their character. We saw the the fickleness of Elimelech, the, the bitterness of Naomi, and the selflessness of Ruth. But as we come on to chapter 3, the three main characters, Ruth, Naomi and Boaz are now much more similar. What it is that they have in common may help us to understand the actions which, if if we're not careful, we could interpret as as naive, as opportunistic, or as seductive. What I want to suggest is they all share a trust in God's sovereign goodness. It's often a lack of trust in God's uh, sovereignty that prevents us from taking what a appear to be, in human terms, big risks. If we are confident in God's sovereignty, then it prompts us to step out in faith. Let's start with Naomi, Naomi's strategic initiative. Now, we're not given any timescale into the story as to what's been going on here, but we can deduce from the fact that um, Ruth started gleaning at the beginning of the harvest season, and now we're into the threshing, that um, a period of several weeks probably has gone by. Remember, this is pre Combine harvester days, uh, things took longer in those times. And Naomi, at this time, at the beginning of chapter 3, asks Ruth the sort of question that expects the answer yes. 
and I don't think she even waits for an answer. She says, my daughter, should I not try to find a home or, or rest for you where you'll be well provided for? And I wonder here, and some commentators um, think here that she's maybe saying at the same time, look, you have more now for, for long enough for your husband, that's Naomi's son, and you should feel free to find yourself another husband, somebody who will provide for you, somebody who will also maintain the family line. Well, having asked the question, she already obviously has someone in, in line at Boaz. After all, she says he's a, a kinsman. And with him, the family line inheritance will stay in the family according to the Hebrew custom. But she has a plan here already in her mind and she spells this plan out to Ruth. And it almost comes across as a sort of detailed instructions given to um, a spy, um, some in my five agent. She knows where Boaz is going to be. Um, she tells her how she should prepare herself, you know, make yourself attractive. Timing is crucial. He has to have finished his eating and his drinking. Must have laid down to go to sleep. And so she'll be spying on him, waiting for that right moment. And she says to her, go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now, I'm sure when we read this, most of us are thinking, well, that is a pretty stupid thing to do, really, isn't it? And go and lie down with a bloke who's had a few to drink. You know, you're asking for trouble. Um, however decent he might be, you're putting yourself, or putting him, temptation in his way. You know, how irresponsible is that? You know, how could you make your daughter-in-law do such a thing? Well, the other risk is that he is so morally upright that he might take it the wrong way and just lose all respect for her and just send her, send her packing. And you think, if Naomi really wants Ruth to marry Boaz, then why don't you just sort of go and speak to him um, and talk about it? Well, what I think it is, and we don't know exactly why, obviously the the writer doesn't tell us, but I think Naomi is so convinced of Ruth and Boaz, convinced that nothing improper would happen, uh, that Boaz would actually be touched by this symbolic offer of marriage, which we'll we'll come on to, to in a minute. The writer doesn't tell us why, she plans in this way, but he's deliberately building the, the suspense, isn't he, uh, to see what might happen. But more importantly, though, I think, in this, as we look at Naomi's actions here, is that we see somebody here very different from the Naomi of chapter 1. Remember when she was complaining to God about all that had happened to, to her? It's all his fault. Um, then she had no strategy. You know, let's just go back to Judah, let's... let's wallow in self-pity. It was Ruth who, when they got back, it was Ruth who suggested, well, let's go and collect all the leftover grain. Naomi at that stage wasn't making any plans for the future. You know, she saw the future as pretty hopeless. And that's often the case for those who feel that they are victims, that, you know, they've been dealt a, a bad hand, that God doesn't love them. You know, it's a state of mind that can very easily lead to depression. And when you're in that state, you're not going to make plans for the future because, well, you have no hope for the future. And so you become passive, you become withdrawn. What is it that's changed Naomi here to to make plans? It's the realisation that um, we saw last week that actually God is kind, he is loving, he hasn't forgotten her. The Lord bless him, she says, he's not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She's seen a sign of God's love in action. And now she's arranging for Ruth to be in the field. Um, she, she, she's arranged for Ruth to be in the field of Boaz. And knowing that 
God is still there for her, that has renewed her hope. You know, she's come alive again. There's a new, new Naomi here. And if that is us, if we're struggling spiritually, if we find ourselves you know, somewhat remote from God, it will help to reflect on ways in which God has already shown his love to us. Maybe in personal, practical ways in, in our lives. But of course, in the greatest way, by that sacrifice of his son on the cross for each one of us. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's why we're going to be doing it this evening, to continually remind ourselves of God's love. If we know God is there for us, if we're confident of his sovereign power, then we'll be more encouraged to make plans for our own individual lives and for, for us as a church. I wonder if, if younger guys do make plans for the future, whether they do look ahead with hope. You know, if you looked at the, the job market, you would think, well, Things are pretty bleak for them at the moment. They look at tuition fees going up. They're thinking, well, do I really want to leave university saddled with that amount of debt? And if I don't go, well, there are no jobs anyway. But our future is not just in our own hands. It's in God's hands. And so we can and should plan for the future. It's not assuming that it's all down to us, but it's doing what we can and trusting in God for the rest. And for us as a church, I think the same goes. You know, we should be making plans for the growth of this church. And if we're not sure about expanding our facilities, maybe because we're worried that, well, if we do and the church doesn't grow, then that was a waste of time. But I think the reason why God is enabling this church still to grow is that we are making plans for the future. We are continually hoping and planning and trusting that God will grow his church. And the minute we stop and just get into maintenance mode and just go through the motions year after year, then we will soon decline as a church. It's not the structure, it's not the the buildings, it's not the strategies that provide the growth. That is down to God. But it's the strategizing, it's the making those plans that's an expression of our trust that God will provide that growth. The strategic initiative of Naomi trusting in God. Well, let's move on to, to Ruth. Ruth's faithful obedience. We've looked before at her selflessness. And here we see that, that faithful obedience in action. Now, you would have thought um, her response to Naomi's plan would have been, you know, you've got to be kidding. But instead, what is it? In verse um, 5, I will do whatever you say. I will do whatever you say. Now, again, there are different ways you could read this. You, you could just say, well, it's just a blind and, and passive obedience. I really don't think this is a good idea, but I promise to be faithful to you, and um, so if this is what you really want me to do, then, okay, I'll do that. Is it naivety? Yeah, sure, good idea, you know, let's go for it. But I don't think it's um, either, either of these. I think Ruth knows what she's doing here. She knows the risks. But more importantly, she knows something already of Boaz's character. Do you remember those previous encounters with Boaz where she found him to be a generous and godly person? Just have a look back at the conversation in chapter 2 in, uh, from verse 8 onwards. Let's just remind ourselves of this. So Boaz um, said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. 
And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with a face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, Look at this this character that's coming out in him here that she's obviously impressed with. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. He's incredibly impressed with her. Now look at this. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then Naomi, may I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've given me comfort, have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. There's almost um, a getting to know each other here, isn't there? This is someone that she's attracted to, someone that he, again, is very impressed with. may not be a physical attraction on her part. After all, all, we're told that um, he's much older than she is. But the most important thing, too, is his godly uh, and his generous character. And so she would be very happy to be married to him. But going back to chapter 3, that we, what we see here as, as Ruth goes along with Naomi's plans is that she's not just a passive conspirator. She doesn't do exactly what, Ruth, what Naomi tells her to do. Have a look at um, verse 6. She did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. But whereas Naomi told her to then do what he tells you to do, after she's gone to him, just do what he tells you to do. Actually, it's Ruth who tells Boaz what she wants, what to do. Look what happens when he wakes up. Must have been a bit of a surprise finding this young woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked, probably not being able to see her in the dark. This is what she says. She says in verse 9 there, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Bit of an odd sort of thing to say, you might think. What's going on here? What does it mean to say, spread the corner of your garment over me? Well, if we were to look for other references uh, to this phrase in the Bible, there is one in Ezekiel uh, chapter 16. And um, if we're um, to turn to that, uh, you'll find that... um, on page 843 of the Church Bibles. Sorry, 841. This is God here talking to, to Israel, describing her as, as a wife. And uh, this is uh, what he says, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. He says, Later I passed by, and when I looked at you, I saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. So going back to to Ruth, what we see from this passage is that in this action, Ruth was not just sort of just going and offering herself for sex here. She was saying, I would like to enter into a covenant with you. I would like to marry you. There's also another link worth taking note of here as well because this, this word apparently called on my garment is the same word in Hebrew for wing. And if we look back at chapter 2, it was Boaz who said to Ruth 
in verse 12 of chapter 2, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth had come to take refuge under the wings of God. And the, the human place where she found that refuge was in Boaz, who'd given her food, drink, protection from young men. Boaz was a sort of reward to Ruth for her faithfulness. And now Ruth wants to cement that relationship. And Boaz has already indicated in the way she, he, he's described her that she's the sort of person he would want to marry. She sought refuge under the wings of God. This is exactly the wife she would li- he would like to have. So there's this very touching expression of love going on here. But what about Boaz, though? If that's Ruth's um, position, and it's easy to, to jump to conclusions about it. What about Boaz? Well, what we see here is an amazing example of Boaz's blamelessness, don't we? Um, look at his actions here. You know, going back to the questions we raised at the beginning about taking the initiative, you may say, well, actually, you know, he's a bit slow off the blocks, isn't he? Why didn't he take the initiative? Now, if he was so impressed with Ruth, then, you know, he's in a position of wealth, he's in a position to propose to her. Why didn't he do that? Why did he wait for her to come in this manner to him? You know, it's a sign of weakness on his part. Well, we can surmise a lot, whether it's because he was much older and didn't think it was maybe appropriate to, to propose to her. Maybe he felt she was still in mourning. Again, didn't think it was the right time. Either way, we're not told exactly, but it's his actions after Ruth comes to him that show his incredible moral character. His own thinking ahead, his own gracious generosity. He could quite easily have taken advantage of the situation. You know, nobody would have known. And that in itself is a real lesson to us today, isn't it? Living in a world where people live for the moment. Often they they don't think of the consequences of their actions. Where they they adopt the, the attitude, well, if it feels right or if you can get away with it, then, well, just do it. And so when Christians adopt a, a counterculture attitude, that, an attitude that promotes sexual purity, that promotes faithfulness, then they're ridiculed for that. But Boaz here demonstrates great self-control. Yes, he wants a relationship with Ruth, but you know, he doesn't want to spoil the, the prospect of a healthy long-term relationship by a moment of passion. And he's also very discerning of Ruth's character. He knows that she's not a loose woman, just come to him in the middle of the night. He says to her, all my fellow townsmen, know that you are a woman of noble character. And in his humility, he thinks that uh, actually she's doing him a favour rather than the other way round. It's interesting, isn't it? The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied in verse 10. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Whatever excited he may be about the prospect of marrying Ruth, he's also pre- not prepared to break Hebrew custom to get what he wants. He shows great integrity. He knows that there's somebody else out there who has a prior claim to him. And so he says to Ruth in verse 12, he says, Although it's true that I am near of kin, there's a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good. Let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. I here until morning. 
Now, I don't think this is a, a sort of nonchalant, well, if he wants to redeem the world free, let him redeem, you know, not particularly bothered one way or the other. But I think it's a trust in God. It's, if it's the Lord's will that we are to marry, then he will ensure that that happens. God will ensure that that other kinsman redeemer doesn't redeem her. But like Naomi, he too is making plans. He's, he's taking strategic initiative here. He's got plans ready for the next day. At the same time, he's trusting in God that the outcome will be according to, to God's will. Strategic initiative and finally he's also concerned for her reputation. Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor, he says. And finally, as she leaves, he continues to show that generosity we've seen already, looking out for Ruth, uh, for her immediate needs giving us some barley to take home with her. Well, as we um, come to, to, to the end, what are the applications that we can just draw together that we've been looking at uh, as we've gone through this story, as we've tried to understand it more? Um, how can we apply that to ourselves? Well, I think the first point is to, to say we do need to seek refuge under the wings of God. Um, if we are struggling spiritually, if we are finding life tough, if we do feel God is remote from us, we do need to, to go to him for help because he wants us to take refuge under his arms, under his wings. If we hold on to a bitterness towards God, if we're blaming him for stuff that's going on in our lives which we don't think should be going on, should be happening to us, then we're not allowing him to, to bless us. Focus on his goodness. Focus on his love towards you and do that in the Lord's Supper in just a minute seek his blessing he doesn't turn anyone away who comes to him for help or secondly make plans for the future trusting in God's sovereignty it doesn't mean those plans will always work out as you think they should work out but we're not meant to be passive Christians. We, we are meant to step out in faith. We're continually meant to be looking at ways in which God can use us, looking at the gifts that he's given us. How can God use us? How can he put them into to great use? Take risks for God. Don't just sit back and wait for him. Just wait for things happen to you. Make plans. Be active. And finally, honour God in your relationships. Don't just do what the world does. Show you a difference in your relationships. Boaz showed great self-control, great discernment, great humility, great integrity, a great trust in God, and great strategic initiative. All characteristics that we should be trying to develop in ourselves by God's grace. A couple like Ruth and Boaz, who live for God in this way, will stand out in the world. And we all here can stand out in the world if we show these great characteristics, if we want God to develop them in us. They will cause people to turn to him.